Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades and compañeros, welcome back to America's favorite podcast. I'm not sure how you measure that, but I think it's true. Um, I would say it's the greatest podcast in America, in the entire country. Um, I have some data on that, uh, mostly from people in my family. And they say, you know, you have the greatest podcast in America. And I say, thank you. And then I loan them money. So I don't know if that's true, but I believe it to be true. And you're here listening. And I'm giving you this, this preamble because we recorded something at uh, the Substack headquarters in San Francisco a few weeks back. Now, I do believe, and, and you know, the Substack people will probably send me an email um, or a cease and desist letter saying, I think we are the most popular news and politics podcast on Substack. Is that true? Did someone tell me that? I think someone told me that. That said, after we recorded this podcast, I had 78,000 drinks that were on the Substack bill. So, so, so I obviously have an incentive to lie uh, because I'm both an alcoholic and they're paying me. Actually, no, you're paying us. But this preamble is for a couple of reasons. We are kind of on vacation. We try to still produce content when we are. Camille is in Utah with his daughter. He just sent me a picture of her with, uh, you know, these headphone things on that you wear when you're in a Cessna. So apparently he's up in a Cessna right now with his daughter. There's only coach in a Cessna. So I think she's just going to have to deal with it. Matt is, God knows where he is. Uh, He's just disappeared. Um, I think he's joined a sex cult of some sort, but um, it doesn't matter because we've been trying to replace him. And we said, we're trying to replace Matt. And some of you have sent your applications uh, to legitimately send send resumes to replace Matt. And when we went to San Francisco, Matt did not come because he burst an eardrum. And or so he says, we do that in air quotes, but you can't hear that in the podcast. And so we replaced him for this recording, which we did live at Substack headquarters. And we recorded with our favorite communist. Doesn't that sound like a 50s TV show? Six of my favorite communist. So we figured we, we recorded with our favorite communist. She's not a communist, but she's, she's very much to our left. Um, Laura Bazelon had her back. A lot of you guys really liked her and we really like her, um, despite the fact that she's wrong about everything and appears to be friends with uh, Chesa Boudin and uh, would probably drive the getaway car if he were to, uh, you know, rob a Brinks truck or something. So we have Laura Bazelon and uh, Hamish McKenzie, the CEO and um, I think co-founder. I think there were a couple of them that founded Substack. And he comes up on stage and is um, lilting, mellifluous uh, Kiwi accent and talks a bit about publishing. So um, I just wanted to give you guys that intro and also warn you that we did not record this ourselves. The recording is not amazing, um, but it works. And uh, at some point during the broadcast... Uh, Camille's lav mic drops somewhere down his shirt. Uh, so he's a bit muffled at the end, but you can make him out. And um, I assure you, he's not saying anything interesting anyway. So like, just trust me on this one. We are back from vacation soon. I am recording this on a Saturday, beautiful Saturday in uh, Massachusetts, where I can see the ocean. And I should not be recording on this beautiful day, but I'm about to go outside. And until then, um, if you're inside today, you should be listening to this podcast and you should be subscribing because I'll tell you what, our recent episodes that are subscriber only have been great. I'm just going to be honest and say, I think they've been fantastic, particularly one that we did live on Twitch and then released later in which uh, (laughs) Ben, someone I thought was imitating Ben Dreyfus, frequent fifth column guest, uh, Ben Dreyfus in the comments on Twitch, 
And it turned out to actually be Ben Dreyfus. So he joined us for an hour and a half and it was a really raucous affair and super fun. And that's probably the last, I think that's the last subscriber only one that we recorded, but a couple of the recent ones have been, been pretty fun. So subscribe. Here's the episode. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I generally do things at Freethink, although this particular week I haven't really done much of anything at Freethink. I am in San Francisco, in the Bay Area. This is my first time back since abandoning the city um, in March 2020. Two, not because it is a terrible hellhole, but that's not to say that it isn't one. But we <laughs> will perhaps adjudicate some of those things. We are recording live from the Substack wow. offices. I am joined by Michael Moynihan, who does things at Vice News. Uh, Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, could not join us today because his ruptured eardrum is <laughs> still bleeding or something. <laughs> yeah. And he's not allowed to fly on planes, but he did go to Cooperstown this yes, week. He, did. he was vacationing and yeah. recording things with Nancy Rahman and all of that. Yeah. Whatever, I haven't heard from him all day. But I told him in the last podcast that it is very likely that we will replace him with yes. a new Matt. Yes. And I didn't a suspect new it would be a communist from San Francisco. <laughs> it's, it's okay. We, this Just is why wait until you see my Boudin family tattoo sleeves <laughs> for a big reveal. And this is why we have Laura Bazelon with us. You were a guest on, and what was the, we brought you on for, particularly to talk about. Well, you just Francisco, written, right? no, she just written a fabulous piece about the ACLU in the oh, Atlantic. Yes, yes, yes. And I was on your side on that one. And then you wanted to talk to me about Chase Boudin, but we ran out of time. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. was like pushing me off the stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a little too much. I was a little afraid. It was a little, it was a little much. Well, when, when you're not um, teaching law at, I'm sorry, the university again? The University of San Francisco. University of San Francisco. When you're not teaching law, you are raising money. To, to, save, to save young Negroes. And I, I just want to thank you for all the work that you've done on our behalf. It still makes me uncomfortable. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what we can do. I can't get without your Without yeah. your contributions. But no, th- th- seriously, you're raising funds for uh, a clinic on uh, racial justice, is that correct? So the lesson here is do not engage in pre-show banter with Tina Foster. (laughs) It will be instantly weaponized against you. (laughs) But part of my job at uh, USF is to run a clinic, and if I want to have staff work for me to boss around, et cetera, I have to raise the money for them. So we have a new project, which is there's this thing called the Racial Justice Act that was passed in California. And essentially it says that you can challenge your case at any point along the way if it was affected by racial bias. So it's this unbelievably broad law and it's brand new and we are on the ground helping to enforce it. What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Um, But in addition to that, you also do a great deal of work in San Francisco. You help to clear people who have been wrongfully convicted of crimes here in San Francisco, or at least you did, and perhaps may yet still. Can you can you talk to us about that at all? I can. So we, the three of us, share a dear mutual friend, Chase Boudin. Yes. And, right. and Michael and Chase. You got so mad at me because I pointed out just a 
bland statement of fact that he has four parents. He has four, most of us have two. He has four parents, <laughs> all of whom are terrorists. Every single one. I pointed out, and you send me like a direct message, you're like, that is really Actually, offensive. Actually, I, I complained to Camille <laughs> first, and then Camille complained to you, and then yeah. I think you felt guilty. So, you know, I don't know about the rest of you, but like, I didn't control who my parents were, and you seem to be sort of insinuating Maybe that somehow. He has the same politics <laughs> pages. There's no accusation involved that just, you know, your parents are criminals. Yeah. That's interesting. And they, I'm sure they brought him along to like pull off the heist when yeah. he was in his diapers. Actually, no, they, they were on the run at that point. They, they, left him with, <laughs> they left him with the babysitter never to return. So in any event, when Chesa launched his improbable campaign to become the district attorney in 2019, it was improbable then. Mm-hmm. He needed some policy advisors. And so there was a ragtag team of us, including me. And of oh, course, I have man. a lot of ideas that no one was interested in at all for 45 years. And one of them was, I thought, if you really want to exonerate people, you need an independent panel of experts to do that. Because prosecutors always tell you, oh, don't worry, we have a conviction review unit. And we have our own people look at our own work. And I'm like, right, except you never exonerate anybody, which is true in San Francisco. Their unit was just kind of bullshit. And that's true most places. And now you just don't prosecute anyone. They just don't overturn anything. (laughs) Well, you're, okay, we can get to the prosecution. That's how you solve that. Well, Camille asked me about the exoneration (laughs) part. We can get to the prosecution part. So that was my, that was my idea. And he won after a runoff and he created this commission and put me in charge of it, so I chair it. And there's five of us, very opinionated, diverse people. It is not a room full of communists, although I'm sure yes. I will not be able to convince yes, you. Yes, stop it. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to have to try to get through this without dying of laughter. Without Okay, I'm never going to convince Michael that we're not communists yeah. seeking to overthrow the government. But actually what we do is we, we do, it's pretty tedious. We review thousands of pages of documents. We interview witnesses. We get experts to come and talk to us. We talk to the person who's incarcerated. At the end of the day, we put together a big report, we give it to the DA, and he's supposed to give it, or she, mm-hmm. great weight. So our first case, we did that, and the individual, his name is Joaquin Syria, was convicted in 1991, and he was exonerated on April the 20th, in, after we recommended, and Chesa agreed to tell the court that he was, he was factually innocent, and he walked free, and he's out after 32 years. Now, of course, Chesa has been recalled, and there's a new DA, and this is a creation of the DA, and so the question is really like, well, do we continue to exist, or you know, would this DA want any of us to stay? And in fact, you, have, you haven't been fired yet. You haven't been disbanded by the it's DA. It's hard to fire someone who works for free. Yeah, well, that's not, actually. <laughs> We've had many producers. They don't last very long. We've never given them a fucking penny, because <laughs> they're all terrible. The reason, you, the reason why I'm difficult to fire is because some of the money that I go around raising goes to pay the staff attorney. So we're all pro bono, but the staff attorney, who's my employee, she kind of keeps us on track and does, you know, the heavy lifting. And so if you get rid of me, you get rid of her, and then are you really going to have a bunch of volunteers doing this? Mm-hmm. You know, so so the, that's the big question. I get to have a sit down with the new DA, and we can talk about it. So the, the, the DA, and I mean, we should, we should talk about how this program works. It is a program that is operated by the city in the sense that it's an independent commissioner, at least, that's empowered by the city, Letting this kind of fall by the wayside or have the wrong sorts of people running it is only so disconcerting for them because that means they don't have to have anyone scrutinizing their work and overturning their convictions. This is probably not a bad thing if you do that. Um, so sustaining the program and keeping the right people there is, is important. And it's not obvious that that will happen. 
And I, I mention that because while there are some, some disagreements, which we should get into in a moment, we're generally in agreement on the importance of criminal justice reform. And I think there are a lot of ways to talk about criminal justice reform. There's you know, bail reform. Um, there are certain people who believe that you shouldn't prosecute any sort of low-level offenses. But there are also just general questions about police accountability um, and about things like the Innocence Project or your program that is overturning um, wrongfully convicted folks. So we can talk about all of that, and we can talk about the, the kind of bold, ambitious reform agenda that Chase of Dean had when he was elected to office. But I think the thing that people think about most when they think about San Francisco and when they think about Chesa at this point is the broader narrative about the, the level of safety and criminality, the kind of Mad Max nature of SF. You made fun of me for saying that when I came in. Well, and I, I tell you what, I went out for a walk today and it's totally true. I mean, <laughs> just, I don't know if I had forgotten. I was like, maybe Laura's right. And then I was like, she's actually a communist, so she's probably not. And I went out just like take a rent because we're close to the, you know, the bad bits. Because, <laughs> you know, Camille Books Hotels obviously is amazing. And I went, so there was a cover story on the San Francisco Chronicle today, which, by the way, it took me fucking, what, two hours to find the newspaper. I was walking around. Nobody has the newspaper. I finally get the newspaper, sit down, and there's a thing about a club here, which I presume that a lot of you have heard of, called the Black Pack. Is that right? It's like a jazz club, and, it's, and so it was robbed last night. The man who runs the club is talking to the San Francisco Chronicle reporter because it was kind of a smash and grab thing, and the police, in their infinite wisdom, Allowed, they went and they, they caught somebody and they released him, of course. Uh, you know, you just do that now. And they released him and then they left the place open. So the guy is telling the Chronicle that throughout the night, there's just cars coming up, filling the cars with booze and the rest of it. And there's a Reddit thread about this. And someone posted it and the first comment was amazing. The first comment was like, I, you know, it's incredible. I was at the Civic Center this morning, and I was wondering where all the great, like, high-end booze came from. And I was like, it just goes out that quick? That is, and so I was like, I'm going to go down there and walk and, you know, get a sense of the neighborhood. Because I've been coming to the city for many, many years, and it's changed a lot. Of when things. it was full of interesting and intelligent people, as I think you said on a previous podcast, yeah, yeah. and now it's not. There's no, it's not, not. All of us are stupid I and boring. I was, in fact, talking about you. Yeah, yeah. zombies that I'm Michael you has to steer around yeah. as he decides to take a run down Market yeah, yeah, Street, which, yeah. why would you run I down? Because that's where they fucking what? put me. I don't you know. Can go anywhere. It's not like I was in, like, some suburb. This is, like, kind of the center of the city. You expect it. But, no, I go to this. So I walk to this place, right? And, and you know, I'm, like, looking, and they're kind of restocking the bar. And then I took a left. And the most amazing thing to me was I didn't know this, and it wasn't mentioned in the piece. I presume that they expect you to understand San Francisco geography. The police station is on the fucking block. It's on the very block. You can see it from the front door. You can see the police station. And people are driving up and just filling their car all night in front of the police station. We don't have that in New York. I'm sorry, but we don't. It's different. So when I came in and you made fun of me, which I expected because you're, you're a jerk. And I, I was going to say something else, but like, there's, like, there's people here, so you're a jerk. And so I was like, yeah, no, I know. We, we, we laugh and stuff. But it is kind of fucked up here. Come on. Michael, I just love, acknowledge I that. love like, you so much because you're making for... all of my points for yeah, me. Yeah, okay, yeah. let's, okay, let's just totally let's start up. with the beginning of your story. <laughs> the nightmare? That you're trolling around looking for an actual newspaper. Are you 90? Just yes. get this <laughs> Okay, yeah. that's number one. Trust me. Number two, Not a lot of people your whole point here. is that people are committing crimes right and left and the police aren't doing anything. Hell yes, that is true. Guess what? The clearance rate is 10%. 
So if you commit a crime in this city, a regular old smash and grab, you have a 90% chance of getting away with it. If mm -hmm. you break into someone's car, which by the way just happened to me under the new GA, um, and there's the San Francisco snow, I mean, that's what Bill Maher calls it, yeah. you have a 99% chance of getting away with it. So my question to you is like, what do you think the DA is actually supposed to do? No, Go no, out of the corner so and tackle people? My issue isn't so much with Chase Abedino. I think that his prescriptions are the wrong prescriptions. But one has to wonder, I don't, and I've seen like Michael Schellenberger and these people, I don't go that, that far. But what is it, and we have our friend Layden Woodhouse here who's written extensively on this for real clear investigations recently about the kind of open air drug markets and how it is actually goes up to cartels. It's like actually a pretty serious thing. And the fencing rings. And the fencing rings and it's really, really interesting stuff. But how did it get this way? Because to solve that issue, you have to understand the kind of etymology of the problem, right? And I walk around here and I don't know if my brain has been sort of polluted by what I've read about it, but I don't recall it being this bad. It's always had the reputation that, you know, temperate, 60 odd degrees all the time, it's pretty good place to, to be homeless, unhoused, I suppose what I say now. And I don't know why, but that's, I just, I, on NPR, they said it this morning. They said like unhoused. I was like, what the fuck, how is that different? But it's like they flip it around and everything's fine. Like everyone, it goes home. It doesn't, it's not homeless isn't bad. You don't have a house, I mean, it is bad to be homeless, but. Yeah, so like, where, where did this come from in those people that are on the right who I disagree with on a lot of this stuff, who say, oh, this is because of, you know, liberal governance of the city, and it's been pretty uninterrupted, whereas New York has had, you know, Giuliani, and then Bloomberg, and now Eric Adams, so there's some kind of fluctuation in ideology there. Like, what is it when you go to Chester Boudin and you're saying, we need to solve the problems of the city? You must have a sense of where, where it, how it got to this place, right? I do, before I opine, do you want to say something? No, no, no he's asked a question. Yeah. So you trying to dodge the question? No. <laughs> I know what you're doing. I was trying to share space. No, don't share. She's supporting me. Okay, so to quote a show, the police investigate crime and the district attorneys prosecute the offenders. So you can't prosecute someone who is not caught, which to be a broken record is not happening. It is not happening in this city. And I okay. think I think the level of incompetence and scandal and and just awfulness of the San Francisco Police Department, it predates Chesa, I think it got increasingly worse under George Gascon, who started there. He was yeah. um, the San Francisco police chief before, I think, he was appointed DA, and then he ran and won. So he had some buy-in initially, but then he starts moving to the left. And when that happens, the police essentially retaliate by saying to citizens, like, we'd love to investigate that smash and grab, but we can't because George Gascon won't prosecute, or we can't because, you know, these San Francisco juries, they won't acquit anybody. And whether it's their own inability or unwillingness to do their job— or their own corruption and like the scandals in the San Francisco Police Department are legion, especially considering how small it is. What we have is this failure to actually arrest. And so when you then But get is it not codified now that you don't arrest after a certain point, like $950, what well, was this so, sort of thing? Right, like, okay. So there's that too, right? Yes, so then the other thing, that, okay, so then the other thing that happened is, you know, we have super majorities in the House and the Senate in the state government here in California, so we passed a lot of progressive bills, including a bill that says it's a misdemeanor if it's under $1,000 for theft, and so that and this means- This passed in like 2014, so it predates Chesney. Right, and also like Chase is not in the legislature. I mean, according to Fox News, Chase is in the legislature, he's like control controlling the police, 
he's standing on the corner, like handing out get out of jail free cards, right? Like they put him everywhere. But the truth is, you've got to look systemically. So why are the what's happening? In San Francisco, who are not, I presume, a pretty progressive city, sitting in front of, you know, Laura Ingram drooling every night. I mean, why did they recall him by a pretty wide margin, considering he won by a pretty small margin? It's, I mean, I think it's fair to say that he's been scapegoated and has almost certainly had to wear responsibility for more things and can properly be set at his feet. And it's probably beneficial for law enforcement to do that. It's beneficial for the rest of the municipality to be able to do that as well. Many of them who are also Democratic officials, like the, the mayor of this fine city, who I've, I've spoken with on occasion. He's very, very yeah. nice woman. But at the same time, if he's culpable, then perhaps she's not when she gets to appoint someone. I told you that she complained you to me about the emergency when I met her. get cleaned up. Do you remember yeah. that? Like someone ought to do something about this? Yeah, I was like, you're the fucking mayor. <laughs> I didn't know who it was. Yeah. I was at a party after the California Democratic Convention. Yeah. And I went to this party for this woman who lost that night, and she was there. And I was like, I think that's London Bridge. And then she walked in, and she was like, man, it's yeah. fucking crazy getting in here. I believe she's and I was still- like, And she was talking about homeless people, and I was like... There's a couple people in this room can do something about it, and I'm not one of them. Isn't she still like the highest compens- the highest paid mayor in America? I think that's right. Yeah. And so this is, I think- which is, I think that's a fair point. But I think it can also be true that Chase, on a in a couple of different ways, perhaps both with respect to his policy emphasis, but also with respect to his skill as a politician, because being DA, you, you got to go to court, you got to staff this particular um, this particular branch of government. But you also have to be a politician. And when people are asking you questions and calling into question your leadership, if it feels like there's a lot of buck passing. And one of those phrases that I would hear oftentimes when I would see him in the, in the media is, well, look, we're not going to be able to arrest our way out of the problems that we're seeing with homelessness. Well, yeah, OK, fine. But who thinks that they can arrest their way out of that? It may be complicated, but it might be that scoring some convictions is part of that. And it might be that you could bring more cases to trial. And there does seem to be some places where there were some deficiencies. Can, can you spot any places where he perhaps made mistakes that you're willing to acknowledge, even though you oppose the recall effort? And I, I know you Look like that him personally. Oh, Neil, <laughs> you canny cross-examiner. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, to be clear, he had never run for office before. He, he was, I don't even think he was 40 when he won, and he had never been a prosecutor. So this was an incredibly unlikely victory. And then he inherited an office. Most of the people in there were not probably super thrilled. And of course, if you're like a novice politician trying to implement an agenda that is not what everybody has been down to do for decades, there's gonna be all kinds of internal issues. There's gonna be turnover. There's gonna be people backstabbing you. And then there's gonna be your front facing position. And you're right, I think saying to people, you can't arrest your way out of it when they've just gotten their car broken into or- Like you. (laughs) Or, you know, their kid asked them, mommy, is there a horse on the street? And you're like, that's not a horse's poo. That's just poo from not- Your your kids ask if it's a horse. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to remind people that you wrote a book about how much you hate your kids. Which is great. Oh, my we have a kids. copy of it here. We can't throw them up. Yeah. We can't throw them under the bus anymore. They've, no. been, they've been rolled over. They're no longer conscious. It's fine. They're insensate. Um, but yeah, I think absolutely. And I guess the other problem is like it's really hard. I think when you're in that position and you feel under attack all the time, not to be really defensive. And then I think the other problem, and you can watch this play out 
there's this awesome documentary of Larry Krasner's first year as DA in Philadelphia. And you you watch people like Larry and Chesa who are like very much in the weeds on the data. And when when people come to them and say, you know, this, this, and this, they'll say, well, that's not what the data says. You're safer than ever. Crime is actually down X because they're, you know, they're in the weeds with the numbers. But you can't say that to people. And there's this town hall that Larry Krasner had that was utterly disastrous where he does that. And you can just see right. the reaction right. in the room. And I was yeah. cringing. Right. I was cringing and my sister works for him and I love Larry and I live in Philadelphia. Your sister work, does the whole family work for like progressive DAs across the There are the many vast lots everywhere. <laughs> we run everything. We are legion. So we, we are in a room, we are in the Substack offices, we are surrounded by Substack employees um, and friends of Substack and friends of ours as well. Um, and I'm wondering because I presume most of you live in San Francisco, how many of you have witnessed like shoplifting or had your car broken into, not ever, like in the last. I didn't believe it. In the last four months, <laughs> as somebody said at the beginning, by the way, that Camille um, uh, didn't do anything about a crime. First day in San Francisco, yeah, he texted yeah. me, "I'm in Walgreens, and there is a woman applying um, what was this? A body lotion. Body lotion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First of all, like I'm fine with that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, just, I don't know if she's paid for it. Just." Good. Well, well, she's she's she offered you the body lotion too, which I think is great. Well, no, not quite. Although she was offering kind of. me kind of her body. Yeah, she was, yeah, yeah, she was yeah. flirting with me aggressively yeah. while lotioning her legs. It's a high and declaring people. loudly, "I'm not stealing. I'm just using some lotion." Yeah. Um, so a question that no one was asking. Right. By the way. Eventually, someone someone who works at the Walgreens is kind of walking down the aisle, and they're they're standing right in front of her, and I'm wondering if they're getting ready to confront her, but they're actually just waiting for her to move out of the way so they could walk past. Again, She's open bottled lotion, applying it in the store. And then she decides, you know what? This smells really great. I'm actually going to take this. Puts it in her bag and, again, continues to flirt with me. But then walks out of the store. And I feel like a chump because I go and get into the line and she takes the express line out, which is don't pay, put it in your bag and just leave. And as someone who lived in um, the Bay Area, in Tiburon, not San Francisco proper, most, most of the time when okay, I saw San Francisco, it was shrouded in fog. Let's be clear, okay, let's let's be clear exactly where you yeah. live. One yeah. of the wealthiest places in oh, the yeah. entire country, it bears zero resemblance to actual San yeah. Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just yeah. saying, I'm, but I'm saying I would visit uh, here. You're done white splitting. <laughs> I mean, it's. I, you're really progressive enough to San Francisco. And when I did, like seeing that sort of stuff was fairly routine. Whether it was me taking my daughter to like the Van Gogh thing and, and witnessing pretty, pretty ugly. But that's stories. a lot of people here that raised their hand. I lived in Manhattan for 10 years, in Brooklyn for 10 years. I don't think you get a similar life. response. I mean, that's the thing about, about the numbers. I mean, we hear this a lot about New York City too. And there's a lot of things that you can't sort of quantify, like, you know, oh, oh, the crime on the subway is lower than it's been, blah, blah, blah. I take the subway at night, often, you know, at like midnight or one o'clock or something. And I've never been robbed. I've never been attacked. But it is so fraught and so different than it's ever been. And you know why? It's because of the number of people that you don't want to make eye contact with has increased like 50-fold. Like, People are like right up in your face, like making you uncomfortable. They're not robbing you, they're not punching you, they're just like really kind of being threatening all the time. And that is just kind of a vibe shift in a way that you can't quantify. And so when people say, you know, oh, well this crime is actually down and this one has been steady, is the feeling that people have, is, is that one of safety? I mean, as, from a political perspective, it's very important that people feel safe. And if you have an interaction, it's just, you know, sort of, pushed into, you know, one kind of balkanized neighborhood, 
and you go along the kind of border of it, you're like, holy shit, this is the Michael Jackson thriller video. There's like people just like lurching around and I don't see that in a place that's as concentrated in New York. You see on the Bowery. The Bowery, that changed, right? And doesn't mean it doesn't exist. They push these things other places. But just the feeling in San Francisco is something that a person like Chesa Boudin or any politician has to deal with. And when you say, you know, it's we have a supermajority and we have a very progressive legislature and they're the ones that passed this law. Well, he's also super progressive and people say, well, this is actually what got us into this place in the first place. We don't need that anymore. We need somebody maybe a little more moderate, maybe somebody in Eric Adams who talks tough, is a Democrat, was a cop, you know, does talk about racial justice, but does also talk about throwing people in jail. And it is, that's the hard thing about politics is, you know, doing something that, that changes things on the ground while also telegraphing to people that you're doing the right thing and you're going to feel safer. It's so much of this is about feeling. And, you know, I covered Trump for way too long and it distorted my head and it was awful. Is but, that your excuse? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, <laughs> no, I went, I went from yeah. a fascist to, then I read it to Trump and I was like, I think I'm like Basilon. <laughs> I think I'm a member of the Basilon family. Now. But I went to five, six, eight, ten, whatever, uh, Trump rallies and you never could engage anybody on a specific political issue. It was always one about feeling. You said they don't you, care you covered about us. Trump rallies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I was covering them, and I would interview people, and they were like, "They don't care about us. They have." I mean, who's the they? And you could once you try to push down on that, there was really nothing. But there's a version of that in San Francisco. There's a That's version a of that in New yeah. York. And there's a version of that with everybody who cares about politics and pulls the lever uh, for a candidate. It's like that feeling that that someone is doing something horrible to them. And when you meet them with a farrago of statistics, they're gonna just tell you to fuck off. And they did, you know? I mean, that's, whether you like it or not, they, that's what they did. To draw out that point briefly, because I'm, I'm sure you have thoughts about this, but as someone who's, who's lived here and as someone who lived through the recall and was active in some of this, it's interesting that so much of state and local politics seems to take on this very like, nationalist, national character. At this stage. Yeah. And, and the reality is that I think what Mo Moynihan is describing, just that personal feeling that the, the state is letting you down, that your, your elected officials just aren't doing their jobs, that really seemed to be palpable in the recall election. Like it didn't quite matter whether or not he was progressive, whether he was a Democrat or not. This wasn't about like Republicans or some conservative cabal yeah. doing something. I know some of the people who were involved in and who were funding the recall effort. And we don't share the same politics. My politics are decidedly libertarian. Like I have, I have friends who are like hardcore conservatives. Um, that's not who these people were. Um, it seemed to be very different than that. Do you have a sense of whether or not that's kind of an accurate reading of what played out with the recalls, given like the, the, the post-recall narratives that I seem to hear a lot of, which is, you know, this was a, a conservative insurrection, it's unacceptable that they came in here and disrupted our politics. What's your read on that? So it is a really interesting stew because, of course, most of the money came from Republican billionaire Silicon Valley bro types who don't actually live here, and they had the money. But you're absolutely well, some right. Some of them live here, but yeah. Okay, and I guess one or two of them maybe like step in here every once in a while, but they don't do Michael Moynihan's run down Market Street. They okay. know better than that. Yeah, you but do realize that you're in Substack. What's <laughs> up, <laughs> so, bros? <laughs> she hates you. <laughs> That's what the other side looks like. Well, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> if I don't make it home, we know why. <laughs> but you're absolutely right, Camille. I mean, so, you know, to put a fine point on this, um, I had the 
distinct not pleasure of being Chase Abedin's surrogate in a debate mm. against Brooke Jenkins, who is now our DA at the Commonwealth Club, which I don't know if you all know about the Commonwealth Club, but they might as well call it the Blue Hair Club. It is the yeah. most the average age of the membership is probably 89, right? And they told me this isn't even a debate. It's going to be a conversation. So genius that I am. I brought my kids because, like, my parents brought me to stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Their dad came mercifully because of what I'm about to tell you happened next. And, you know, the people who are in the room, these are not Republicans. Mm -hmm. This was a room full of people. The recall had bought the tickets to the room in bulk. They had bought them in batches of 10. Wealthy people had done that and then handed the tickets out to the most vociferous mm-hmm. recall people. But they were, they were absolutely voting Democrats and they were so angry. I have never been in a room like that with 100 people mm-hmm. who literally wanted to rip me apart limb from limb because I was a surrogate, and and you know, and who are ten, nominally on your side, right? Right. Who who are yeah. we? We we pull the lever for the same national yeah. people, yeah. right? Yeah. And so you know, ten or fifteen minutes in, the moderator, who is utterly useless and out of her depth, <laughs> didn't moderate, said something like, hey, "I don't know whether to call you Professor Basilon or Lara." And this man said, "Yeah, because she's a bitch." Wow. And yeah. And yeah. When it happened, I I'm looked... So, I didn't mean to say it out loud. <laughs> I was trying to be quiet. I didn't know it was you. It's a rat kind of thing. Oh, God. I've been wondering if it was you. But, you know, I look into the audience and, you know, I see my daughter and then, you know, her dad, like, picks her up and he says to my son, like, we're out of here. And my son is like, no. So they leave. My, my, their, my kid's dad leaves with my daughter. They're, they leave. It gets worse and worse. I mean, they cut part of Your it. Your son stayed. Stayed, and then at the end, they yank him and they yank me back into the green room and they just shove us out, like, get out of here. Because it was just so, I mean, they were yelling and heckling mm-hmm. by but the you, end. You cannot buy that type of anger. You can buy the tickets. Correct. People are angry. That's exa- yeah. that, this is my point, yeah. although I just want to say one thing about my little son, which is that I said on the way home, we, we held hands on the way home. It was pretty wild. And I said, you know, why did you stay? And he was like, Mom, I wasn't going to leave you alone in there. Those How people. old is he? He was 12 then. Oh, man. So, like, you know. Also, he can't walk home by himself. He'll be murdered. San Francisco. He's like, I'm not going out this fucking place. But I tell this story because, you know, they made us do this crazy thing where we had to, like, get up and make an opening statement, which I didn't even know we had to do. I had to get up. Like, I was in court, like, make an opening. But in my opening statement, I said, my children are here. They're sixth generation San Francisco. Siskins. Sickos, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. They knew they were there. Really they knew they were there. They didn't care. They yeah. were so angry. And it wasn't rational. Like, and yes, these people are Democrats. So what is that about? And I guess, you know, in reflecting back on all of that, a big question I have, and it's kind of maybe an existential question, I'd be curious to know, have you weigh in? Look, we've had a recall. We have now put in someone who is is deeply centrist. We have a deeply centrist mayor. Uh we have a police chief who's promising he's going to do a better job. And I guess the question is, okay, you know, six months, a year from now, are people going to feel yeah. safe when, when Moynihan goes for his Market Street jog? Yeah. Is he going to be dodging <laughs> zombies or is yes. he going to be like handing out, you know? It's an extra obstacle. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so like, is it going to change? And who's, and yeah. if it isn't yeah. different, who's to blame? And I think going back to your point, Camille, about London Breed, you know, she and, and the chief, the police chief, they have used Chase Abedin as a human shield. I mean, absolutely. They, and he's been their whipping boy. Well, he's gone now. So yeah. you know what? This lack of safety and this feeling and this hostility and this hatred 
it's if it's still here, there's no one to deflect it, and it's on them. It, but the the thing that is interesting is it will it be on the party? Because you know, I mean, this is a one party state, in like you know the Soviet type you know use of the expression, and the fact that Democrats run everything top down. And so there's a point at which you say, okay, well, this is deeply rooted. It's not going anywhere. And these are policies that have been implemented by these mayors over this period of time. And they've all been Democrats and we need something different. I never thought that, that we would see a sea change like that in politics in certain places until I went to Texas and I went to the Rio Grande Valley and I spent a good amount of time there and I didn't hang out with anyone whose native first language was English and everyone had flipped. And I would look at them in the face and say, this man said, you know, you're rapists, you're X, Y, and Z. And they were like, you know what? It's totally different when I go outside and there's people coming through my backyard, camping out in my backyard. And that was the moment that I realized the disconnect that we as journalists have from what's actually happening because we have decided that with these absurd terms that people are black or people that are Latinx or whatever, you know, a term that nobody in that community uses or has ever heard of, which is something that white liberals in New York, who I'm friends with and go to dinner parties with, that's what they use. But no one else actually uses this. And they say the funniest thing. They're like, you understand the commonality between me as a first-generation Mexican-American from just kind of over the border, we grew up over there, we came to Texas, in somebody from Venezuela, or somebody from Honduras is wildly different. And you have a fucking political party that keeps on saying it's Latino and these people. It's like, we don't agree on anything. And the fact of the matter is, is there is a bring up the drawbridge kind of immigration waves, right? Mexicans are like, man, we don't want those Hondurans. And the Hondurans are like, man, those Salvadorians are really the MS-30. Like everyone I talk to, they could have been white people in Long Island and you would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. But they were Hispanic people of various backgrounds and this is the problem. I think this is the problem that everybody has this idea in like national Democrats, you know, people in the media, and I won't say anything about party when it comes to the media, but we, we, we just don't understand what is happening in the world and we love these little categories to talk about black Americans. Like Camille, Camille's a good example of this. I get to watch this on the sidelines and to see the shit that he gets called on Twitter, I would fucking kill myself. But somehow he deals with it and has been dealing with it for a long time because it's like, you're black, to which he, of course, responds, no, I'm not, which is amazing. <laughs> um, that's a whole different episode, but um, which was, I think, episode one. Um, in, in the last one, too. In the last one, too. It yeah. comes up a lot. Yeah. Uh, so you have to hold this very narrow set of beliefs. And those are usually not other black people. Those are usually white people. And the same thing with like Hispanic issues, it's usually white people. And so this kind of idea, which I find amazingly poisonous and kind of ruinous politically, is the change that could happen to California, nobody saw happening in, in Texas. Trump, they're Hispanic. Hispanics are, no, 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 go talk to people. Star County is the most Hispanic county in America. It is 98 point something percent. There's like one white guy. I saw him, he's very nice. He's just like, he can't, he's, can't find his way out. There's like one white guy there. They went for Hillary Clinton by 42, 43 points. Biden won the county. He won the county by four. Mm. The 40 point shrinking. 
And then you go and talk to these people. And they're like, why are you talking about us this way? Like, we're people that have ideas and we disagree. And you guys kind of come with microphones and be like, why are you doing this, you Hispanics? This is not what you're supposed to think. And I think that that's what is probably going to wait for California if this stuff doesn't resolve itself in some way. That there's going, and I don't know how to do that, obviously, but this idea that Democrats are just going to run the tables for a long time, I don't think that's plausible in the long run. Because we're seeing it in other places in the country, it's it changing a lot. Well, I'm, I'm inclined to, to ask our other participant for the afternoon to, to come up and join us and perhaps shift the conversation a little bit. So Hamish McKenzie, for whatever reason... Um, has agreed to join us as a part of the, the founding crew here at Substack, someone who I've gotten to know and who I like, but we're going to do our best to make life a little difficult for him. So Hamish, if you wouldn't mind coming up and joining us, I'll make a little room for you on. Well, Hamish, I, one, again, appreciate you bringing us all here together today and bring us a substack yeah this is very nice one thanks for coming to substack you notice the boss has a really loud microphone i've got the big one like Like mousy yes (laughs) this is my instrument of dominance um but i want to talk about a couple of different things um first i mean we're we're in san francisco you are part of the kind of tech bro contingent that's responsible for (laughs) ruining the city and driving up rents and yeah that was other various problems why do you guys stay here Mm. Um, I know that there's like a, a tech ecosystem and yeah. a culture and uh, the VCs have been here traditionally, but during COVID, and I know a lot of people at a bunch of different um, VC firms, um, some of them have defected to places like Austin, Miami, Utah, Lake City, um, but you all are still here. Yeah. How important is being in San Francisco to Substack before we talk about some of the other stuff? Well, I used to live in Austin. It's 100 degrees, like yeah. 40 days in a row in the summer. That's uncomfortable. It's not actually a pleasant place to live most but of the time. they do have a gigafactory. So. They have a gigafactory, and we, yeah, we have the Fremont factory. Um, Isn't it shuttered now? No, it's still going. It's just not the main dog anymore. Uh, it's kind of like the boring business reasons. It does actually make a difference to be in the places where the niches are deep when it comes to building a startup like it's it's a weird thing to do like build a startup you want other people around you who have done it yeah. to be able to learn from them and to be able to uh, get the people who used to work with them come work for your company mm-hmm. like we started this company with a bunch of hires from a, um, a company that my wife used to work for uh, and that sort of stuff is really hard to replace There's a, I, as a reporter when I was writing about tech companies and tech ecosystems around the country and in other countries I would go to each one of these other cities and they'd say yeah, we have all these advantages over Silicon Valley. We're going to be the next Silicon Valley because talent is easier to hire, it's cheaper to hire, and they're more loyal. They're not just jumping from place to place. Um, but that was all bullshit. <laughs> like they, they were all like, there's a massive window of daylight between those cities and uh, San Francisco or the Bay Area. And it's just deep niches, like people who are doing this weird thing and are up for operating in this way, and they think in a particular way, I think that's something that's built up over decades, and you can't get it just overnight in Austin or Miami. When you get, let's say you expand to 10 times the size, and we hope that you do, um, is there a point at which you leave? Because, I mean, Camille and I were talking about this this morning, and because I brought this up and said, you know, the way we look at it, because of the people that we know on the platform, it's to us like a journalism platform. That's it. Like, I know there's like, you know, Salman Rushdie is on it and George Saunders and all these people that I really love and respect. But I just think of like, I just see journalists and I go to people's Substacks and Andrew, all these people from all sides of the political spectrum, I like to add. And I usually 
try to add that anytime I have a conversation about it, because when we came over to Substack, there was a kind of hangover from some of these New York Times articles because people who ran up or run off of other platforms had a home, you know, within some limits here that, oh, that must be one of these like sort of reactionary places. But are you, do you think of yourselves as a kind of journalism company in any way? Or just kind of a, we're a platform in the way that so many Silicon Valley. There's a ton of um, publications on Substack that couldn't yeah. be categorized as journalistic. There's like f- food publications, there's finance, um, stock picking publications, there's weird animation publications, and tin, like a newsletter about tin sardines, is that sort of stuff. There's a serialization. About it though, right? I mean, that's, that's it's, it's a type of journalism, right? I mean, you, there's you know, news magazines and finance magazines. I consider that. A type yeah, I mean, of there's a right? like broadly, really, really broadly defined, I guess, like journalism is one of the, the main things that is happening on Substack. Yeah. And part of that is because I'm a journalist and I came from that background and when we were like I was charged with going out and getting the first writers to come on Substack I go to the people I knew in the area I knew but it's really a platform it's not it doesn't like anyone can come on and start like a knitting community and I think this is actually the way it's the knitting communities ones they're the most savage actually so they're, yeah well, really like, don't come to Substack it's literally it's, bizarre like yeah. that's a real thing yeah, yeah it <laughs> somebody is somebody sent me a story about like all the tumult in the knitting community yeah yeah I gets, thought it was a joke no no it gets bad no they're yeah. all psychotic <laughs> no yeah it's like being down here in the tenderloin it's like yes. yeah it's like Madame yeah. Digital Farge yeah. <laughs> yeah so actually what I was going to say is that it's, it's moving more in a direction of and I think part of the thing that is that Substack is all about that is not necessarily perfectly understood in the world is that mm. a lot of these are communities as well. And so sometimes journalism is a thing that the community rallies around something. That's, sometimes it's like a, like a profane podcast about politics and culture. But I don't think like, was your question going to be like, why are we in San Francisco for that? Do, no, do I mean, it's, well, because what, what, the reason I brought it up is because I view this as kind of like a journalistic enterprise of, in a way and this is kind of a hard place to be a journalist unless you're a tech journalist. I mean, you go to New York, you go to D.C., you can even go to L.A. in some senses, like in entertainment journalism. But it just doesn't seem like the natural place for like a journalism outfit, as it were. So that's why I was wondering if there's yeah, like, we do you actually think of yourself? No, that way we at definitely all? think of ourselves as a technology company, yeah, yeah, a yeah. platform company. And when you're a technology company, you want to be where the great data people are. Yeah. You want to be where the great engineer people, engineers are, where the great product people are, where the great people who know how to build a technology company are. That's the Bay Area. Whether or not you like the crime, yeah, <laughs> is, yeah, that yeah. is the truth. Like, this is where the people I mean, are. who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> I love crime. Yeah. It's a particular kind of crime. It's kind of an adorable... If you have someone that does like it, she'll get them elected. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if, if, uh, you said, like, a misunderstanding, like, a misunderstanding about Substack, and it's kind of funny that when I was saying this this morning, I'm like, what is the kind of... What, how, do, how do they consider themselves? Because I see you guys in that way. But, you know, it took, it was about a year in, or two years where the word Substack was on the lips of a lot of people, a lot of journalists. And being in the world of journalism for as long as I have, and you come from that, that universe too, is shockingly, <laughs> they get a lot of things wrong, right? I've a noticed lot. this more as a I lot have. Of, a lot of lit. people get this shit wrong. So what, what is that stuff about Substack? Because I'm always trying to disabuse people that there's any ideological bent to Substack, which is clearly not right. true. And um, what, is the, what are those misunderstandings when you see these big articles in the Times? I mean, it must be flattering in some sense that good news or bad, the New York Times is covering you. That means you're consequential, right? But what is it that they're consistently getting wrong? The th- well, there's lots. But a, th- a thing that comes up commonly is that Substack is just a place where Glenn Greenwald, Barry Weiss, and Andrew Sullivan do their work, all of whom are doing 
great work in Substack and deserve the notoriety, good or bad. Just for the record. Yeah, maybe yeah. we're the gay platform. And they're all friends of mine. Yeah. <laughs> And they wouldn't mind me pointing that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Substack is like, Substack is... So it's a reactionary gay publication. It's a reactionary gay pu- publication. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah. That's, um, that's where the... I'm that's glad the vibe cleared shift. that up. Yeah. But Substack is the internet. Like, it has everything. It has, it has like, we started with a, a bunch of people, like, who are very obviously from the left. For a long time, yeah. Chris was on my ass saying, we need to get some right-wingers on this platform because yeah. it's too embarrassing no, on the left. Chris, he's always saying that. Yeah. He's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and so it's diversified over time, and as Substack's become more known, people have come from all walks of life and all backgrounds and all viewpoints to do their work on Substack. But I think what the way it's reflected in the media reflects the media's obsession, yeah. because what they see is what they think is that's the world. Right. Yes. Can I ask you a, a question, a Substack writer question that's not about journalism? Yes. Okay. So it seems like the newest controversy on Twitter is can can certain people ever get published as as novelists again, right? This is a big conversation. I think Kat Rosenfield, yes. who I admire deeply, just wrote a, a big piece about this for Unheard. Yeah. There's been a lot of back and forth yeah. chatter about this. So and and then I can't remember, Camille, if this came up in your interview with John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry last time or whether John McWhorter said it in a different time, but he was talking about how he was able to write his book in chapters and publish right. it on Substack. Yeah. yeah. Last conversation we had. Yeah. Which and was Solomon very Rushdie's doing something similar. Which is very so. interesting. Yeah. By the way, yeah. you should all listen to this the three way conversation that you had. I'm gonna plug that because there's a Substack three way there as it well. It was yeah. absolutely yeah. <laughs> I, it was riveting. Wow. Um wow. I'm a big but I, I th- those two too like I listened yeah. to them. We are really gonna change you aren't we? Anyway but, yeah. <laughs> But we here's, won't tell anyone. They don't listen to the fucking fifth column. Come on. But here's it's my, a safe space. <laughs> it is the unsafest. Well, no, the Commonwealth was worse. Okay. So my question to you, though, is like, is that a model? So I guess what I'm saying is like, say you're a, a budding novelist and you're like, you know what? I feel like the publishing world is, is hostile to me and I'm yeah. not going to get an agent and I'm not going to get a book contract. Mm-hmm. Like, is there now a way to publish your 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 fiction writing the, the way that, that John McWhorter published? I can't remember which book of his, but the serial. His was nonfiction. The successes that we've seen in serialization on Substack tend to be nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, Matt Taibbi serialized two books, Hate Inc. and The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing. Actually, oh, The Business that. Secrets of Drug Dealing. Was, was the Hate Inc. one was on. Yeah, that was okay. Substack first. Um, Steven Sanofsky's writing one about Microsoft and the history of Microsoft, where he used to be an executive called Hardcore Software. Freddie DeBoer's got a, a fiction um, novel serialized through Substack. All this stuff is starting to happen. Yeah, there's going to be, um, there will be successes. I think the product has to evolve a little bit to support it a little bit better. People are kind of hacking the product to make it work for the pro- product. Yeah, I think there are going to be some successes. I don't know how huge it's going to be. And we definitely see nonfiction a little bit more successful than fiction so far. Uh, but actually, one of the top sub-stacks sub by subscriber number is Dracula Daily, which is Dracula serialized daily um, for free, um, not by Bram Stoker, by someone else who's doing it on his behalf. The knockoff um, Dracula? This is the most popular? That's the largest sub-stack by active subscribers. People are strange. Yeah. It's a good book. It's like kind of proven. Yeah. But it's like a rewrite of the original? Sorry? It's like a rewrite of the original? Okay, who's the subscriber here? Someone tell us what it's... No, Sophia. It's, the, it's the actual novel. It's the actual, it's the actual, actual one. Yeah, you can love with letters. Yeah. Is it like annotated? It's a mystery novel. 
he's just, just a bunch of drama people, seriously. Yeah, he's following the, the dates on the novel, so it starts May. Oh, Saturday I see. The there you go. Wow. They haven't turned on paid subscriptions yet, but they could build a community, for example, around that book, and everyone could be sharing insights. Wait, so they haven't turned on paid subscriptions. Have you no. encouraged them to because they have so many people? I'm sure we've been in the area about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm the Greek person. What are you doing? <laughs> Want more subscriber, my friend? <laughs> We had a conversation about this. It's fine. It's all right. It's okay. <laughs> so I'm like the anti-mogul, so I'm sure this is not a money-winning idea because I've That's never a, had one in my entire life. It's a good dating how do you profile. Win, how do you the anti-mogul. <laughs> you win money. So I live in a shoebox, and I've never been able to really reliably, uh, I've never been able to get rich doing anything. But here's, I'm wondering if like, okay, so let's say, you know, you're writing something that's like a legal, not a legal thriller, a suspense, something where, you know, you could pay more to find out, like get further in the, yeah. in the novel. It's like chapter one, whatever. And then you like, it's like, you know, their special little podcast that you can be a member to listen to. Although I think a lot of people are waiting for you to have me back to the perennial returning champion. To But could you see a model where that's, that's what's happening? In other words, it's sort of your traditional suspense or science yeah, fiction, yeah. something where, you know, you're really gripped and you want to find out what happens next. And then you have to pay a little extra to get like the next chapter, or you could wait for the following week, something like that. That is kind of what's happening. So people will serialize a book. They'll make the first few chapters free. Uh, in Substack, we always say you should make your best stuff free, get people uh, hooked, get them used to your worldview and your voice and your quality of thoughts. And then as they fall in love, they'll be happy to pay. They won't begrudgingly pay. They'll be happy to pay to support the existence of this work and help make it good and vital and healthy and exist for other people. So we do see something like what you described actually already happening on Substack, even though the product is kind of nascent in terms of its ability to support serialization. Yeah, I have some questions about like the business of Substack, but I want to return some of the kind of questions that we almost got to related to kind of the philosophy of Substack as an institution and also the, the broader media obsession with Substack. As Moyne yeah. alluded to, there are all of these stories that have been written in, in the New York Times recently, but not only the New York Times and the New Yorker and in other places. And a consistent uh, formula that I'd seen is something along the lines of, is Substack good for democracy? Things along those it's Substack, the media future we want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I find it, I find it incredibly interesting, especially because <laughs> okay. this is what's bad for democracy. Or I don't know. I've seen much worse rooms, <laughs> much worse for democracy. Some of the some of the stories, the same stories, will acknowledge the fact that there is this parallel between sort of the internet broadly, mm -hmm. the printing press, or the radio, and the kind of democratization that happens when you have a platform. That, that comes into existence that allows a greater number of people to venture out on their own, to have a more independent voice, um, and to tap into these different audiences. But where Substack came uh, or rose to prominence and is rising to greater prominence, one hopes, um, for your sake anyways, uh, <laughs> that, um, and I suppose for mine too. Yeah, we're rising, we're rising yeah, together. We're, we're all in this so. together. Although I, I don't have as many shares as we should talk about that. But there's a sense in, but there's a sense in which there seems to, like at the current moment, there's a great deal of concern about misinformation, about the wrong sorts of people having megaphones um, and being amplified. And a number of the quote-unquote controversies that have surrounded Substack have had something to do with whether or not there was the appropriate kind of moderation taking place at Substack. I wonder if you could speak to some of that. Um, and I, I won't make the question any, any more pointed than that, but we're, we're probably going to follow up in a way that, you know, we're going to knife you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. There's like nine questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I think Substack has a great interest in achieving the same, same outcomes as people who want to fight misinformation, which is that we want a more trustworthy media ecosystem. We want trustworthy institutions. We want people to have uh, the ability to come together in good faith discussion and make progress together and understand each other and work together, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And I think there are people who have good faith and good intentions who want to fight misinformation, who are resorting to the idea that censorship or content moderation is the way to do that. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame them. We've gone through like a decade of pretty terrible shit <laughs> and seeing like social media play a, a large role in delivering us the shit. Um, Facebook and Twitter in particular, but Instagram, TikTok will be part of this story too. And so the impulse understandably might be like, let's control those things. Let's make them like, let's tame them. Let's kick all the bad voices out and only keep the good voices, which is a really difficult project. And we're seeing the effects of how difficult that is. And I think the the approach that they've been taking up until this, pro uh, until this point and that people continue to advocate for um, and criticize Substack for not accepting is actually making the problem worse. They are fighting misinformation by banning voices or shutting them down or putting a little state-affiliated media flag uh, beside their names um, and reducing trust generally. Like by combating misinformation directly by playing whack-a-mole with it, they actually erode trust because people don't know, like people from the left and the right and everywhere in between have been affected by this kind of censorship, this kind of content moderation. And our approach is like, no, 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 no. That, that's fucking everything up. That's making it harder. That's making our goal of building a more trustworthy ecosystem of having a better understanding of each other, of being able to enter into good faith discussions with each other harder. Mm -hmm. And that the better, the, the, the better approach, or at least Substack's belief, our thesis on this, is that the problem needs to be solved at the system level. It's not uh, create a system that massively amplifies uh, voices and um, rewards provocative content, which is a lot of what's happening on social media, and then make sure that you can pick correctly the bad voices and the good voices and separate them. Our thing is like, let's build a system that actually doesn't reward attention seeking so much and instead rewards people who are delivering quality and who are treating the readers as their customers and not as the product. And once you get to that place and you create a system that's something like Substack or something like WordPress even, where it's like people opting into their own media relationships and choosing who to follow, who not to follow, um, not having stuff forced down their throats, not having stuff sort of leading them into these fights and sort of flamethrowing combats, um, then the problem of uh, content moderation becomes a lot less fraught. It's, you, can have a much, you can have a much wider view of what's acceptable so people language. People do buy in to crazy people, right? And, and reward them in incredible yeah. ways. Like Alex Jones, for instance, who I went to his studio in Texas. I think we were the first ones to film there. In, uh, before Trump took office, it was right, it was right after the election. Mm -hmm. And you were giving Alex Jones a platform. I was giving him a platform yeah. before that was considered yeah. a bad thing. Like Megyn Kelly interviewed him on NBC and really got, and I was like, no one's going to fucking attack me. Like, come on. <laughs> I was like, I did one that was a little like, you know, and we, it was like, it was kind of, I challenged him a lot, but it was just showing this kind of lunatic in a way. And he was doing exceptionally well. And rather than getting to the bottom of why 
he was doing exceptionally well, people said, well, we just need to get rid of him and kind of ghettoize him in a different platform. Would you allow somebody like Alex Jones on the platform if he said, you know, I just like, you just substack now, (laughs) you'll write about it, you know? And he was, I mean, he's not somebody who lends himself to the page, really. He's a jowly psycho who yells at you on camera and that works. But if he said, go ahead. They're made for social media and they're made for TV. That's a perfect system for them. Writing emails to to people is not as good as system for them. But, uh, say, but say it was an email roundup of all the clips from this week that are hosted on Rumble or one of these other alternative platforms. Is that okay with you? I won't get into the hypotheticals because you won't know until they're actually there on the go. platform and then you make a trade. Corporate <laughs> speak, corporate speak, corporate speak, corporate speak, corporate speak. But also... dodge this question? I will dodge. I will, I'm just going to artfully dodge. Yeah, wait, you we're going to cut this out in the edits. No, but the problem is th- there's not... Well, let me I, I would take that. Let me phrase that. I'll just say, do it, what are the guardrails? Where can people not go? I know this is a question people ask you all the time. And I think it's a pornography type thing. I know when I see it, like if you have a bunch of Nazis on there, go fuck yourself. We don't want you. It's bad for everybody. And, but is there a place where like, okay, you're on the Marjorie Taylor Greene side of the party or whatever the other version on the other side is. Like, is that okay? I mean, where, where are we those have, We have content moderation guidelines, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so no porn, no doxing, yeah. no uh, threats of violence, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. And we guard the platform at the extremes when people uh, breach those content guidelines. Um, but otherwise, our general approach is sort of old school ACLU approach, yeah. like let the, let the Nazis uh, march in Skokie and let them be humiliated uh, through discourse and exposed. Um, and eliminate your and don't matter or enlarge them by, yeah. by sort of um, making them these uh, spectacles where they get to claim martyrdom or like from being kicked off the platform. But you know, you know yeah. part of the issue here, and I'm going to channel liberal journalist friends, or at least liberal journalists who have been on this program before, who have been advocating for something like, quote, moral clarity in journalism. Like they, their perspective would be that if, in fact, you're unwilling to draw a bright line and say that we won't have these people pushing these monstrous views on our platforms, then you're effectively siding with them, which is, which is why you yeah. said old school ACLU values, and as Laura can speak to, those aren't really the ACL value, SELU values in the same way anymore. Yeah, AC, like things have changed. It's difficult to take this position. They're, very, they're always going to be difficult decisions to make. It's never going to be not difficult. The, yeah. the content guidelines give us uh, the ability to act when we need to act. But what can I say? What can I say on that front? Yeah, like if we're, if we're making an appeal for moral clarity and for people to act on that moral clarity, then I think you're forever going to have a difficult problem deciding on whose moral clarity yeah. gets to rule. I mean, somebody has to decide what's the misinformation and what's the disinformation. I mean, Laura, you've are an old school ACLU type. We've talked about this. We have, we agree on a lot of this stuff. What do you make of this? I mean, it it was after 2016, right? I mean, I saw this happening in real time that the fake news stuff was actually from the Clinton campaign. That's what they were the one who started saying fake news. And immediately Trump appropriated it and then used it and weaponized it, right? The problem with all of this was, was that you did have some real elements of the Russia story. There was a lot of really not real elements of that too, because 
partisan politics inflates this stuff. But that was kind of used in a way of democracy dies in darkness, we're under threat. I think January 6th we see, you know, which is obviously a very serious, terrible thing that was, you know, lorded over by a terrible man. And I think that we all agree on that in the fifth column. But that, unfortunately, I think, has been used in a way that is like, okay, we have to guard democracy. We have to make sure that misinformation is not getting out there and essentially condescending to the American people. They're too stupid to figure it out. We have to do it for them. Do you find that that's a, a, a kind of problematic thing, either in academia, where you exist, or in media, that people are actually trying to shuffle through this stuff and collate what is real and what isn't and will be the guardians of truth? I find it deeply problematic. And actually, I also find it hard to take legacy media's savaging of Substack remotely seriously because they have a vested interest in taking you down. Exactly, right? It's a zero-sum <laughs> game, and you are eating into space that I think they're seeding. I think you're seeding space when some of your best journalists are fleeing because the workplace that you've created is so incredibly hostile to them, or they feel like they can't say what they want because they're going to be so heavily edited. And a lot of those people are migrating to Substack, and guess what? They have enormous followings. Yeah. And then you have legacy media sort of piling onto Substack. Well, honestly, I find that I find that very difficult to take seriously at all. I think my issue is sort of the, is that I, I think what Substack needs to do is, is have a more robust editorial role, because I do think that some of the stuff that's generated, you know, it's just, it's not edited and, and fact-checked, I think, in the way that it probably should be. But I think to say wait, 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 that— Hold on one second there. Yeah. But, I mean, fact-checking is something that doesn't happen, for instance, in the publishing world. Okay. There's no fact-checkers. Books are published, they are edited, but they're not fact-checked. That's too expensive, there's too much volume. Newspapers try to, but it's pretty fast. Magazines, particularly places like The New Yorker, they still get it wrong sometimes, but they're like the gold standard of this. Where does one start fact-checking? Because, you know, if you're writing a newsletter yourself, if you're your own kind of person on Substack, and I'm writing my ideas and my feelings, when I write something about an issue, pick, pick any issue, I'm going to have a diametrically opposed view of somebody that's, say, on the other side of that issue. Our ideas and our kind of facts are going to be different, how we interpret those things. It's very hard to fact-check that stuff. Newspapers are saying, you know, um, you know the, the famous New Yorker thing is that, you know, they... they you know, called the guy who's described as being, you know, uh, a shiny-headed bald man and said, is it true that your head shines and you're bald? And he has to say, yes, you know, like, that's the type of thing they're fact-checking. The stuff that you see on Glenn Greenwald or Barry's stuff, I mean, it's, it's you know, argumentative. It is, it's hard to do that, right? I'm not, yeah, no, no, no. Who's responsible for I'm not, No, 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 I'm not talking about that. I don't think that you can fact-check people's arguments and ideas, but I yeah. think you can fact-check the underlying facts upon which they are relying. So, you know, in my life as a lawyer, if I get facts wrong or I swear to something under penalty of perjury and it's not true, I'm in a shit ton of trouble. And so when I write for magazines and newspapers, I get, I mean, the, the Atlantic, those fact-checkers, man, they are on you, yeah. every word, right? But I'm on them. I've like, documented everything because I'm so afraid of getting something wrong. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that's, that's not, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that there's le that level of rigor. So I am not talking about the marketplace of ideas. I'm talking about sort of the basic facts upon which we must all agree so that we can now have yeah. divergent points of view. I'm very sympathetic to that idea coming from news business myself. Um, but I want to sort of clarify that Substack is not 
the publisher. We do not publish the fifth column or edit them, um, nor would we do that if they asked us to. Um, I totally wait, understand. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe the shortest email I ever wrote. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Fuck, um, no. Maybe Dear Hamish, too. Yeah. <laughs> be but, nice about it. But there's nothing to stop the fifth column from hiring their own editors and for hiring their own fact-checkers, yeah. and we encourage them to do that. Glenn Greenwald, whatever opinion you have of him, has a fact-checker. He has an editor. And if he gets sued, you don't get sued. Glenn Greenwald. Someone might try to sue us, of course. Yeah, like you sue anyone I mean, as a lawyer, yeah. like, yes. Glenn's getting sued and not yeah. the people who create the platform. Yeah. Yes, please uh, communicate that widely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, we are the platform. We're the, we, we have made it easier than ever to start a media business. And a lot of, in the early stages of Substack here, we're only sort of, this is our five-year anniversary since registering the company. Most people only sort of heard of Substack in the last couple of years. The, uh, the, Early stages of the company, the most of the media businesses that have been started by, by sort of like solo blogger types yeah. who are like very opinionated, who are sort of doing or market analyses or something like that, where the it's part of the compact with reader that the fact checking process might be a little bit woolly or is not as important to the work they're actually doing. Or then you get publications like uh, the Dispatch, for example, which is. Um, uh, many editors, many uh, fact checkers, news business that is building completely on Substack, which we love as much as we love someone like Matt Iglesias who's sort of writing out of his own basement. Well, um, and they could do that, by the way, because they were the Weekly Standard, basically. They, were weekly, they was, just brought the Weekly Standard yeah. over and put it in called it uh, yeah, Dispatch. Yeah. But the one of the things they sort of I'm proud of about Substack is that it makes it easier than ever to start that kind of media business, whether or not you want to invest in fact checking and all this other apparatus around the editing process, there's not, we're not putting an opinion forward about whether or not you should have an editor. But don't you think there's a business opportunity there? I mean, obviously. I think you should start that business. Yeah, create a services <laughs> business. The answer to that question is obviously no. Arts, editing, legal, that's, that can be you. You can service a whole suite of <laughs> yeah. Substack as you create the new, uh, News Corp on Substack. But is there not an opportunity in, in some way, shape, or form to, to think about those kinds of services as a way to, yeah. to create a deeper relationship with some of your publisher, with some of the content creators who are on the platform? Yeah. Because it, I think it's an, an important, important distinction. I mean, we, the fifth column was on Patreon before. Um, and we decided to move over to Substack yeah. because, because the thing that Patreon you what? Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing that we saw is really it gave, us, it gave us greater <laughs> control over our relationship with our customers. Like, yeah. We're doing the billing now. We yeah. have we have all of the user data. And before we were kind of we we were at the mercy of Patreon yes. in some respect. Yeah, they were also that, at the mercy of their content <laughs> moderation too. If they decided that you you know, ran afoul of right. some rule that you didn't know about, you were gone the next day. And there's a lot of people that that happened yeah. to. And it actually, in this kind of, you know, marketplace of ideas and marketplace of businesses, it created other businesses. There are people that started their own versions of Patreon, not terribly successful, but they yeah. did that because they were kicked off the platform. Yeah. But, that's, but that's the point. And that's yeah. the, the challenge that I'm sort of presenting here, which is there are other folks who are doing something like Substack, like Ghost. And if some time from now, we say, you know, we don't really like English and all those things anymore. We're going we're gonna to take our business and go elsewhere. We could. How are you ensuring that you're creating enough value to, to keep us in This is literally just like a private question. Yeah, this is like, no, yeah. no, this we, is, we didn't have to do this on a podcast. This is, this is, <laughs> listen, I, 
I would hope that the people who are investing money in an organization like Substack are asking questions like this. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Like, we charge ten percent. We take ten percent of your subscription subscription revenue. Yeah. So we have yeah. to we have to justify it. Yeah. And I'll come back briefly to the like, can we provide services for special relationships? Actually, we have help facilitate services is a sort of philosophical difference where we're not going to have in-house editors who work on your copy and make it better, but we'll facilitate a relationship that you can have with an editor where you are in control of that relationship, you own that relationship, and the editor works for you. And in some cases where it makes business sense, we might decide to like subsidize that relationship. Mm -hmm. um, we've done that with legal support through a program called Substack Defender. So you have at your um, disposal the services of lawyers who are on contract uh, with Substack, but are not in-house at Substack to get pre-publication review on a touchy story, for example, or are you not across the board, or only select for people who have who are in the United States. Okay, because that's with lawyers. Do people avail yeah. themselves of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With, that's like, actually a, that's a very positive sign. Yeah, yeah, and respectful, like because one of the one of the things is that like in small town or independent journalists, especially like their antagonists or the people they're covering, will see an opportunity to intimidate them out of doing the important reporting that they're actually doing. And we just want to say to those uh, people who would do that intimidation that you're not just reckoning with this like independent yeah. writer you're reckoning, you're reckoning with the Substack Defender program yeah. which will have this person's back that's really interesting I mean all of my lawyer interactions which I have frequently on every I mean most stories that I produce not because no, I mean it's just <laughs> it's, a, it's a prophylactic measure I promise you and you know what they're looking for is not they're not worried about facts and they're not worried about they're worried about getting sued right? yeah. and they're looking at these facts and if they're on the fence they're looking at how they could potentially get sued and that's why they look at it. It's not an act as a fact checker. Right. And lawyers are, are, they perform a very different function. Right. But, you know, I, I mean, I was thinking about this when you said Matt Iglesias, who, you know, Matt, I don't know. I've met him. He's been in the same universes for, for a while. And, um, you know, he's a very liberal guy. He made his name as a liberal guy at a liberal think tank and at the American Prospect and wrote an anti-Iraq But he war signed book. the wrong letter. And that's it, right? I mean, and the funny thing about it is you made this point that I really can't believe I haven't thought of. It's like, they're mad. I mean, New York Times has all these stories because, like, the person they hated most in the New York Times just Barry. And her wife, who is right, it was a former uh, Nellie Bowles, San Francisco, based for a while, is, is now uh, doing it with her. And that irritates people, but it, it's always going to look a certain way because look, you know, it's not conspiratorial, and I'm not coming for this from any ideological point of view, but if you are Matt Iglesias and you run afoul of people at Vox, you're gonna have to leave at a certain point. And there's a reason that everyone's going to Substack and it feels a certain way. It's like, maybe the problem is with your organizations. Maybe the problem is not actually Substack, is that the people who are attracted to it are getting run out of their organizations for asking pretty basic, normal questions. Matt annoyed people by saying, I don't think rioting is a good thing. That's literally what he did. I mean, it's no, no, I mean, we have a friend, um, Lee, who I think works at still The Intercept, and, you know, interviewed a person. The, the interview subject gave the wrong answer. And it was like, you have to get rid of this guy. I mean, I have seen this so many times of like, how do we get rid of this person who has noxious views? I, you know, it's one of the things like we should have Laura come on and one of the things we talked about, it's like it's always better and fun to have people who are kind of on the other side of a lot of these issues. The only problem for us is it's hard to get them. We don't like echo chambers, but there's been this thing that has developed within journalism, which is staying in your own patch 
And people don't want to go outside. If anybody from any place who disagrees with me asks me to come on, I say yes every time. I, just, I never say no. I love it. I love the sparring. I love the jousting. It's always super good-natured. I mean, all, not always, but mostly. And this has been a platform not for people of an ideological persuasion, but people that are being kind of pushed out of places for asking the wrong questions. If that tends to one ideological persuasion, that's, that's not Substack's fault. You but know? I think this is where, this is the genius of Substack, right? Because I think, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, people who let people yeah. like Felicia Somnes run. I'm going to start saying bad shit about Substack in a second. <laughs> more, more drinks to uh, Michael, please. <laughs> but, but, you know, the Washington Post, until they finally fired her, they let Felicia Somnes run rampant. Okay, so that's the kind of thing that they're doing. And they're thinking, you know, for the people with the quote-unquote noxious views, I'm going to bury you. Like, yes. I'm going to fire you, and then you are going to be buried six feet yes. in the ground. But no, because yes. then they go to Substack, and they have these massive followings, and they make twice as much money as they ever made at their legacy media job, and all of a sudden, the joke is on the Washington Post and the New York Times. Well, the, the and reason, that is the genius right. of Substack. And, and, and the reason people hate Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, and look, Glenn, we know Glenn. Glenn is, he is a very prickly guy, and that's part of his personality. But the reason people hate Matt and, and, and Glenn most is people don't like what they seem to, they perceive to be defectors. And that's a defection. You're defecting from Rolling Stone. You're defecting from The Intercept that you helped created. You were of our tribe. Now you seem to not be of our tribe. Look, you talk to these guys about anything beyond a certain narrow uh, bunch of issues, and they're very much still on that tribe, right? I mean, but that's people not... are also, I think the readers are voting with their feet because I think the problem is when you cast people out because they're not ideologically pure enough for you, then the people who are defecting are your audience because it's suffocating and stale in there and no one wants to read the same stuff anymore. There's so many columnists where I look at their name, you I don't have to exactly. read the column. I know yep. exactly, exactly what it's going to say. Yep. I feel myself getting stupider and stupider. And <laughs> in my job, I cannot afford to be stupid. Yeah. There are evil, bad people trying to wrongfully incarcerate my clients. This happened before right? Yes. Yeah. You're just getting dumber and dumber and you're like, I this seems like a good job for I me. mean, <laughs> if you care, I think, about anything passionately and you want to be good at whatever it is, then you better damn well be prepared to have an argument with someone who has the best argument on the other side. And if you yeah. cannot engage with that person, yeah. you are not only a coward and morally culpable, you're actually, a, like, you are bad at your job. Yeah. You suck at it. And I think it's that's the whole boring. thing that I tell my students. I'm like, your life is totally boring. It is an it's awful silo and echo chamber, but you're also just going to be bad. But do you, bad do you at actually your see job. that with your students, that they are pretty siloed at this point? I mean, I remember it from a long time ago being that way. I mean, I hear that it's worse now, but do you get that from your students? I do to some degree. I mean, I try as hard as I can because it's funny. I mean, I know you think that I'm just a terrible, awful communist, yes. and we still yes. I still haven't explained yes. to you why that's like not true. I like you. Okay, thank you. He was efficient. We have to bring my mother into this and why I'm not a communist, but we'll get to that in a second. But because wrongful convictions is kind of this thing that, like, everybody loves an innocent person. Yes. When I teach that seminar, I get, all, there's a big segment of the population at USF and they're the children of cops, they're the children of prosecutors, yeah. they're, you know, they're, they're centrist or they're to the right. And when I teach that class, like sometimes they'll come up to me and they'll say, you know, I really want to write a paper about why Chase Abedin sucks, but I'm afraid if I do, you'll give me a bad grade. And I'm like, I'll probably give you an A because yeah. everybody else is writing this other thing. Like yeah, yeah. I'm starving for the yeah, other yeah. argument. And when we're able to have that in class, and I think it is getting harder and harder. It is, because when you're the minority in the room, whatever minority you are, 
Mm-hmm. It's it's it can feel very intimidating. I like do, yeah. you're just going to be a yeah. shitty lawyer. But it can also feel pretty intimidating when you don't feel as though the faculty in a, at a particular university. Now we're getting a little subtext. Yeah. That the faculty. I, come back. I haven't told you about that. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're <laughs> starting a university <laughs> too. Oh my god. <laughs> but 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 when the faculty doesn't seem supportive. I mean, are you an outlier in that respect? Do you have a sensibility about what what other faculty might do if they discover? that they have students in the class that have particularly pernicious ideas. So I don't sit in on my, my colleagues' classes, so I, I can't sort of attest to what it's like in, in the room with them. But you've I, got a sense of what the campus culture is like. I want to believe, in general, that students are able to say what they want to say, adhering to sort of these guidelines of, like, don't incite violence, don't be a Nazi, don't just do some race-baiting crazy thing. Mm-hmm. But, but I am sure that there are plenty of people who hold their tongue because they're afraid of being ostracized, whether it's getting a bad grade from their professor or whether it's the students not wanting to talk to them anymore or not being invited to whatever. Like, absolutely, that is that is 100% prevalent. I think people who deny that are denying reality. Yeah, I mean, you started by saying, don't, you know, provoke violence. It was the first thing you said, violence. It's not a coincidence that people have recast words as violence. I know. Right? I mean, look, that's... that. You know, I say this constantly, but nobody wants to say, shut down speech. They do, they, so what do you do? You recast, like, I mean, nobody likes violence. Yeah. I'm shutting down a violent instinct. And I will just say this final thing before we get back to other stuff, is that I never thought, I truly never thought that my profession would be full of censorious fucking idiots. I thought this was the place that you came because you loved to listen to every stupid idea and debate it and just sort of, you know, bully people for having bad ideas, not saying that they can't play at all. And I see this among so many people, and I find it really unnerving that, like, I, there was a verb that I have, this has come up in a few times in my life, there is a verb that has kind of snuck its way into the culture, which I find so pernicious. It is a verb platforming, Mm. platforming. You say, you can't platform that person. I was like, look, you dumb motherfucker. We used to call it interviewing. Like, how do you know that this person has shitty ideas? Yeah. Because someone fucking interviewed them. And that's how you found out. Don't accuse me of platforming, because what's implicit in that, too, is that if you put these people and their views up on a stage, all of these morons are going to be fucking transfixed by it. They're all going to become alt-right shitheads. It's like, no, you give this stuff daylight. You put Richard Spencer on the stage... And if anyone was on the fence, they're not going to be for very long, right? Yeah, maybe at one person, but that person's always been a fucking idiot, you know? They're not going to, it's like they just didn't hit them at that moment. And that is what I find that, like, I hear people in journalism say platforming. That's what we do, you fucking morons. Like, that's what we do. And the fact that, like, you know, Substack is a platform. Yeah, you know, go in, on the platform and, you know, say what you want to say. And you don't have to worry about going into a meeting and people whispering, like, how do we get rid of this guy? Which I have seen many, many times. Or that, like, the thing du jour to say is just asking questions is Mm -hmm. in and of itself bigoted. I thought that was a journalist. Is that true? Yeah, don't you uh, don't you have to just ask questions? But this idea that you're Which just asking, oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's used like, as mockeries. Yes. Like, yeah. Oh, the just asking. You're questions just asking crowd. questions. Yeah. Oh, that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's your job. I, mean, I, yeah. I suspect part of the problem, at least, um, is that when you have uh, a media organization that becomes a complete monoculture, folks lose the ability, um, in addition to the will, to confront really bad ideas. Yes. They just don't have the tools anymore. And mockery is far easier, and blanket condemnations are far easier 
and censorship. The it's actually you get rest. rewarded too. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. It's like not just a neutral thing. You get actually so rewarded. It's, it's genuinely dangerous and, and hazardous, which I think perhaps leads into a question that is another question about maybe the future of Substack and kind of the opportunities that you see. But a moment ago, you were talking about back to the paid advertising. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. So this Substack is a that. really great platform. <laughs> <laughs> That. I, I, will, I will compliment you. We're cutting that out. <laughs> no one controls us. <laughs> when you talked about providing these legal services to some of the, the um, content creators, I've thought about the, the crisis that we've seen in journalism, like the death of local journalism, and the fact that if you do have smaller upstart publishers who have a unique insight into what's happening in Montgomery County, and they see some, some corruption happening, they perhaps are going to be more likely to publish some of that material on Substack, which could be quickly amplified if it's discovered by someone more prominent, and they could have some some shield that they might not have had otherwise. And I think that's genuinely good and could, is, be, yeah. could be a positive development for the, the, the work of journalism broadly. And interestingly, I mean, John McWhorter, we talked about a little earlier, he was poached by the New York Times after he had some success here, which John McWhorter diversifies the times when he goes there and the fact that they felt compelled to have him representing a different sort of point of view there, it, it seems as though it's it's sort of Substack having this diversifying influence yeah. on the broader media culture. If if they start to improve, is there still room for Substack if they start to get their act together? If, they, if they're a little more diverse and a little less sensorial? I hope they do improve. Uh, that they haven't been improving at that rapid a clip is helpful for Substack in these early stages. But there's massive room for Substack because we're not just... I actually don't think we're in a zero-sum game with the media. I think we're a massive enlarger of the media ecosystem. And you don't have to be someone who went to an Ivy League college and know the right editor to get a job at the New York Times. You can be uh, like a, a college dropout uh, in a basement somewhere in the middle of Ohio writing about the thing you really care about. And there's no one to stop you doing that. And if, you can, if you're good and you can get an audience, you can make a living. And maybe you actually get wealthy doing this because the model is really powerful. And... Uh, like journalism could actually disappear off Substack completely and Substack would still be a really viable business full of lively, interesting voices uh, from people who have something to say and where a community is ready to gather around them. It doesn't have to be, they don't have to be reporters or opinionators. That can be any number of things. Why hasn't anyone else been able to catch you guys yet? Because Twitter, Facebook, they've all tried to launch their own newsletter product. What, what is it about the Substack offering that is different? There's various reasons for uh, the different players. Twitter and Facebook are ad businesses, they're not subscription businesses. For them, the Substack clones that they made were only ever going to be a bolt-on to their dominant businesses, like Innovator's Dilemma kind of stuff. They were not going to get to focus on the thing that we're focusing on with the same degree of concentration. Uh, otherwise, there's a whole lot of sort of mystique and magic and... Um, I don't know about like what's what Substack is um, so like why the others haven't caught up to Substack, but we're not focusing too much on like the people over our shoulder. We're focusing only on helping writers grow, helping writers succeed, and because we're focused on that uh, to such a like an extreme extent, I think it's going to be very hard for like someone to do what we're doing unless they care as much as we do. In which case, like full credit to them, that will make a better world, that will make a better system, that will make a better life for writers. I appreciate the gatekeeper point because I have a game that I, that I play with a friend of mine 
who's also in journalism and TV journalism. And when we see a really shitty article, like the worst, like really bad stuff, that's getting a lot of traffic, we do, we go to their LinkedIn page and we bet on whether they went to Columbia Journalism School. Nine times out of ten. <laughs> Every time. Every fucking time. It's like, and it's like, is it? And it's like, is it? Yep. yep. <laughs> and usually we go back one further because they went to some elite private school in New England, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, I do appreciate, and, and all of these platforms, Patreon included, that there's been all these amazing successes of people who didn't look. I mean, we can count that ourselves as part of that, too, despite the fact that we were in that universe. Nobody ever said we should give these guys a radio show or something. I mean, yeah. I did stuff on Sirius as a fill-in host on Sirius XM, and that didn't lead to anything, really. I mean, this was, we decided to do this on our own, and it worked. And otherwise, there would have been no outlet for us to do it. I mean, this is a kind of broader internet thing, but I just love the fact that so many people that I like, that I respect, that I'm interested in, did not come through the system. Because mm -hmm. the system creates boring fucking clones. And there's so many of them that just say the same, like as you were saying, like yeah. you can just predict what they're gonna say. It's like, I don't need to read this. They're not interesting. They've the, never the nice, experienced anything interesting in their lives. But The nice way of fra like framing that is that the New York Times does have value and the New York Times does, oh, does publish a, great, sure. a bunch yeah. of great writers like Emily Bazelon. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, uh, and, and they're like, it serves not, a certain not purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there are reasons I read the New York Times. There are reasons I need New Yorker. There are reasons I, need, I read the Atlantic. But there are like, uh, I, I, get a, I have a different kind of relationship with the people who are publishing on Substack and I feel yeah. like I know them more. I've built up this trust relationship. I'm sort of like following on and following along uh, and seeing the world through their eyes. It's qualitatively different. I think it's better in many cases, uh, but it doesn't mean that just like the New York Times has no value. It definitely has value. No, no, definitely not. We probably have to wrap up now, but given- Should we get questions from people who want to yell at their boss? I don't, I don't know. Is that possible? Well, may, maybe not. Let's see, let's see how this last one goes. I just, this, this related I just to want that. to humiliate him. Um, yeah. well, this is how good. It's possible. I, I'm, we're sitting in a room, you know, you're, we're surrounded by your staff and we've had a conversation about things that in a number of other organizations- It's very North Korean, isn't it? Like, <laughs> could be- Surviving. Potentially, potentially- Do I stop clapping now? Dangerous or, or at least contentious. And we've seen lots of organizations over the course of the last couple of years be roiled by various kinds of political controversies related to race and gender and all sorts of other stuff. I imagine that not everyone in the room agrees with every sentiment that's been expressed. And it's the case that we don't even all agree with one another on all of the things. They'll be gone before dinner. <laughs> but this is a, this a rope is a ladder out the window. What is the, how, do you, how do you think about the culture at Substack? And what do you all do to, to ensure that you're not the next casualty of some sort of you know, political controversy that, that roils the... the, the an internal revolt. Yeah. yeah. I think we're a, a beneficiary of timing here. Like we're not geniuses of the culture and have figured out all the answers to this, but I'm really glad that we're building Substack now and like 80 people now instead of 800 people now or 8,000 people now after like what has been like a really massive cultural shift of the last few years. Um, and that we get to look at what's happened in other companies and look at what's happening in the culture generally and apply the lessons from those and sort of not try to make the same mistakes. And one of the things we do is that we sort of publicly state our values and yeah, publicly state right. the things we care about. And so that the people who also care about those things, 
will be attracted to Substack and the people who disagree with those things and don't see Substack as a good place to work because of those things will stay away from Substack. That's one of the things that we can do to sort of maintain the steel rod that is required to be able to resist some of the cultural currents that might otherwise roil other companies. Yeah, watch out though. There was a story in the Times about this woman who uh, took a job at Starbucks just to unionize. I'm just saying. <laughs> you might have people coming yeah, in. We hear, we hear stories to, of like plants and other companies. Yeah. Together. Yeah. Yeah. Quite yeah. a little chaos. Oh, yeah. It them. might happen to us, but we've got uh, a yeah. podcast like the fifth column on Substack yeah. to be able to like <laughs> form that rear guard. Do you, do you like send us employees and we'll just denounce them at the beginning of the show? <laughs> it's, like, it's like the cultural revolution. They're gone. They're gone. You get the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's good. That's right? time for us. Yeah. Um, Hamish, thank you for coming. Thanks thank you for, for thank you for filling in for Matt, and thank you for you're you're hired by the way. It was a great <laughs> sacrifice, but you're I tried to be brave. <laughs> I mean, it's a low bar. My eardrums intact. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> falling apart like Matt. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you.